Hey everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced the signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Hello, hello, Forefront fam. Welcome to another episode of the Forefront podcast, another bi-weekly roundup. Alex, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, doing well. Heading into February, and uh, I just thought of this, ETH Denver's coming up fast and furious. I don't know, are you planning on going to ETH Denver? Uh, okay, so there's ETH Denver and there's Dow Denver, right? Are those two associated in any Ooh. way? Are well, they, are they I, at the I know same of time? MCon in Denver. I don't know about Dow Denver, but no, this is a separate Ethereum-based event. It's massive, okay. massive, massive. Ooh, is it massive? Okay, so it sounds like you're going because that's that's your neck of the woods. Yeah, home base for me. So similar Sweet. to MCon. <laughs> oh, be, my uh, goodness. It would be good to see you there, but at the very least, I feel like it might be worth a uh, a recap. And unfortunately, the next episode we're going to record is going to be right before <laughs> ETH Denver. Oh. So we might have to get creative with uh, giving you guys a recap. I, I thought that went pretty well with MCon and the big takeaways. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be talking about it, but I think to tie in the different dots of things that we might be talking about on the, the different episodes we've had connecting those themes, um, yes, I, I think it would yes. be nice to bring something to us. So sneak peek of something to come, whether that's next episode or the episode after that, depending on our schedule. Awesome. Yeah, I, I really wanted to go. I think I, I received uh, an invitation, I think to one of them, Dow Denver, East Denver, I'm not, I'm not quite sure which. and was really, really tempted to go, but I'm actually trying to make it out to South by Southwest, uh, which is oh, just yeah. in March. Um, so trying to be a little bit... Um, more selective about the traveling because traveling is actually, I, I find it to be sort of physically hard on me. But yes, really, oh, really yeah. looking forward to that update. Um, we have a lot in store today. Actually, we're trying to keep things to like an hour or so. So we're not, we're not so overwhelming and overbearing on our audience. But today I feel like we have a lot to talk about. So we're going to skip over the usual segment on social tokens, tooling, and products. And we're going to jump right into social token projects because it is that time of the year again. Yes, my friends, we are talking about the Seed Club Accelerator. Um, we, at this point, not all the winners have been announced and I'll go into a little bit of that later. So um, we, we still don't know who are all the winners. There's going to be maybe five or 10 that are added to the 10 that have already been announced. So to give you a little bit of background for our friends who don't know, What's the tagline of C-Club? C-Club is the Y Combinator of tokenized communities. I love that. Their mission is to serve Web3 community builders and the DAO stewards, the renowned accelerator, as you know, as well as the studio. So through these offerings, Alex, C-Club helps community token projects design their economy, establish governance, grow their social and economic value. And uh, what they do, the financial model, is that they earn a percentage of that community's token supply. So this aligns them long-term with the communities that they uh, incubate. So as these communities and DAOs, uh, they tokenize, they grow the value theoretically in, of the tokens in the C-Club treasury are also appreciating. And so by aligning these incentives, the C-Club is actively seeding and then uh, participating and benefiting in the growth of the entire token ecosystem. So in describing this to you, I can almost see the inner smile in Alex's mind because Alex, <laughs> Alex loves these healthy, thriving, mutual uh, token ecosystems. And when I, and when I think about C-Club, I definitely 
have that image in my mind. And this actually brings me back, Alex. I think it was was our first episode of the pod last year. We were also talking about Seed Club at that time. I think it was the the third cohort had just been announced. We had a fab time jamming on Eve Wealth, Krauss House, Trippy, Psychedelics. I mean, I I remember it like it was yesterday, but (laughs) it's just, it seems like a long time ago. But this year, my friends, it's a new cohort. This is Seed Club 4. And the first phase of the project curation took place earlier uh, in January on Mirror. So this was a token-based uh, voting process with club holders. That's a token for C Club. Club, club holders voting and the top ten projects getting in. But the cool thing is that there's a second phase. There's a final phase of this project curation. It's happening right now. The C Club selection committee is curating, I think, an additional five to ten projects that will then be accepted uh, into C-Club. So I, this kind of triggered an idea in my mind, and I wanted to riff on it a little bit with, with you, Alex, and, and with, the, with the community. I really love this extra stage in the curation process. I'm not quite sure if it's always been there, uh, but I want to call out that I think it's a super worthy accompaniment to what you might call pure bottom-up curation. I love this combination of bottom-up and, quote, top-down, and I think it's very important. But it brings up an interesting question of, you know, h- how one defines when we when we say bottom up, purely bottom up, purely community driven curation versus quote unquote top down. It brings up for me, Alex, this interesting question of how one defines community in the context of a DAO. I mean, can I just put you on the spot, Alex, and just w- what do you think? If if I were to ask you, complete na- na- naively exploring this new space of DAOs, what do you mean by community in the context of a DAO? How would you define community, Alex? Who do you include well, well, and who do you exclude? Yeah, I, I think the challenge is, is that definition. Of, like, uh, I think my, multiple people might have a different definition of what community means. Same reason people have different definitions of DAO. Is community every single person that holds any kind of token? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think if you try for that way, you would very quickly realize like there's probably some people who you wouldn't necessarily want to vote because they're not mm-hmm. intimately involved or maybe even have a, a large say in or a large um, holding of the token and, and say in what happens with the DAO. Um, mm-hmm. You probably want the people who have the most vested interests, whether that's time, whether that's tokens, whatever. And that is more of the kind of less clearly defined community where it's a lot easier to say every single token holder. And we talked about this before is the people who have that specialized knowledge as well, that's a core part of the community and you might want to weight their opinions mm-hmm. a little bit higher. The key here is that the community, the rest of the community, any token holders or whoever, the varying degrees of which they're involved in the project, they should have the freedom to exit if they feel like their interests are not um, being represented in the decisions that the DAO is taking. And I think that's the big difference here is in, in the past in Web2, if decisions are made you're kind of locked into that ecosystem. Like let's take Apple, for example. If you have all these different Apple products and you disagree the direction Apple goes, well, you're kind of locked into that network, that ecosystem. And unless you want to get rid of all the different devices you've built up, which most people will just say, you know what? I'm going to deal with this decision even though I don't agree with it. Where in Web3, you have that fluidity to say, I can rage quit or I can do whatever version. I'm going to liquidate my tokens. I don't like the direction that this is going in. And we're actually going to share a good example of that at the end of this episode of a, a DAO kind of facing some turmoil right now. I love that. I love what you said about uh, the the extent of uh, investment um, and uh, the the context. 
I think when I think about it, it I'm challenged by this sort of binary of community that I often see in the space, you know, uh, community versus non, you know, community means non-core team, community means non-paid staff, community means non-core contributors, community is decentralized, core team is centralized. But I think as someone personally, Alex, I, I came up as a contributor in Forefront and then I and then I had the amazing opportunity to come join full time. I consider myself a part of the community. I don't exclude myself from the community. I don't consider myself yeah. apart from the community, but I'm not just a blank page either. And this speaks to what you were saying about investment and context. I, I have a certain context that comes from my personal experiences, my background, and then the time that I've been with Forefront and my particular vantage point as a community lead, and the fact that I am full-time, and so I'm, I'm supported by the community, I'm supported by the DAO, and it gives me this wherewithal to think and to work on strategic operational level issues, particular to Forefront, all day, every day. And this gives me a very unique perspective. I'm wearing a unique hat. And this hat has value when it comes to things like decision-making and governance. And it's a perspective that other community members won't necessarily have because maybe they've, they contributed to a bounty or two, you know, last season. And that's yep. the extent of their participation. Or they're splitting their time between five DAOs and Forefront is just one of them. And that's not <laughs> a, a that. value judgment. There's a lot of that. That's not a value judgment. We all have unique interests, directions that we want to pursue in life. And that's our collective superpower. Like, I think our collective superpower is not so much that all, say, 10 of us are involved in the minutia of governance for a single DAO, but that, say, all 10 of us are working different DAOs from all sorts of different angles. And the question for me is, how can we do what we do as individuals innately, which is pursuing our unique interests and directions in such a way that the positive externalities of that, the network effects of that, which already exist in fact, but are constantly being privatized. How do we do this so that the positive externalities flow to the, the public good? You know, I think well, you and I have often riffed on this. We, I feel sometimes that the natural conclusion of expectations in Dow life is that we're doing nothing but eating, eating, breathing, and drinking governance. And I don't know if that's a realistic expectation. I think it's actually mm -hmm. similar to what Moxie said uh, when we, we spoke about Moxie's impressions of Web3, that no one wants to run their own servers. We could also <laughs> say that no one wants to be, you know, having hands deep uh, in, in the governance processes of like 10 or 12 different DAOs. You know, any discrete commitment yeah. we do is a tax on our available resources. And we only have um, so much to go around. You know, I personally, and I'd love to hear your point of view, Alex, but I want to do great work with amazing people as a DAO operator. And then I want to get off the computer. I want to go outside. <laughs> I want to enjoy a walk in nature. I want to cook a meal. I personally don't want to be thinking about governance for multiple DAOs. Uh, and, and just like I wear a unique hat on behalf of Forefront, for all the DAOs that I want to be a member of, and we're going to go in a minute here into the amazing projects of the Accelerator that I definitely want to explore and be a part of, I want to trust someone in those DAOs with stewarding all these issues. You know, in, in the division of labor, I wanted to invest my time elsewhere where I have the most leverage to be useful and I want to trust others to do the same in areas where I have low or zero leverage. And this frees me up to do the dozens of other things that I want to do that have nothing to do with participating in governance. But I mean, I'm curious personally, Alex, what DAOs, how many, how many DAOs, different DAOs are you like really, you would say substantively participating in, in terms of like governance and decision-making? I, I mean, I would say just forefront in that level of detail. Mm. Other than that, mm -hmm. it's kind of lurking in different Discord channels and getting inspiration and staying in contact with different people. And I don't want to take that away from like 
that's the better way. I, that seems to be the way that Caroline and, and I both operate. But from the DAO level perspective, you definitely want people in your DAO interacting with other DAOs because we talked about the network effect and the value mm-hmm. of having this kind of mesh, this layer of DAOs that are all interconnected versus all these different silos and they're, they're way more fragile. And I think the more you get the DAO to DAO, you get more anti-fragile. But I, w- I want to come back to two really good points. I loved both of these things that you brought up. The first piece was how you define the core team versus the community. And if you have those that kind of wall set up where it's mm. there's the core team and then there's the community and the core team is not part of the community, that to me reminds me a lot of like what ended up happening to ancient Rome, where it used to be this kind of democracy and maybe the, the panel of people, the Senate or whatever they were calling it, uh, was working for the people and they were seen as citizens. They weren't seen as this elite class mm. and they were working for the people. And then it became very different when it turned into, um, you know, an authoritative type of government where mm-hmm. you have the panel there still, but then it ends up being, they're kind of this elite squad that's kind of separate from the rest of the citizens. And I think it's a very mm. good parallel to see here between who's in the elite politician class versus who's just a citizen. And you see these two different words for it. And it might seem overcomplicated to say, okay, who cares if we define it as being part of the community or not? But the reality is it ends up manifesting in lots of different ways where the core team mm-hmm. starts to separate themselves as this separate entity from the community. Mm-hmm. And that might necessarily mm-hmm. be what you want to do. You want to be intimately involved with the community. You want to be working for the community. You're almost in a subordinate position saying, we're going to do mm-hmm. what the community wants. They're the ones directing us. We are not the ones directing the community. And I think it's really important to define it in that way that you are a part of the community and you're actually serving the community. So I think that definition mm-hmm. is super important. I love that. The other piece that you brought up was the division of labor. I mean, there's a reason why Adam Smith was so um, just pinnacle, the, the pinnacle of economic thought and influences all different schools of thought, regardless of what side that you're on. And that was a key concept that he came up with is the division of labor. Um, mm-hmm. And there are, are different issues with that and the way that you interpret division of labor, where it's just like so divided that you just have someone who has a job that's monotonous and repeatable and there's no joy in it, right? There's still value to working on lots of different things. But you're totally right in that you only have a limited amount of mental bandwidth. And if you're stretching it too thin, then there's only so Mm -hmm. much that you can do in each one of those spots. And again, that's not to take away from the people who want to be involved in lots of different DAOs, because there's a different level of specialization saying like, maybe you're really kick ass at onboarding. And now you just do onboarding at all of these other different DAOs. That's still an aspect Mm -hmm. of division of labor. And that doesn't mean you have to get intimately involved in all of the different things within all of those different DAOs. Or you could say, I'm just going to laser focus on one DAO and get involved in lots of different things with this one DAO. That's another form of division of labor. I think it's really important to keep thinking about that and that the goal is not for everyone to be working for multiple, multiple different DAOs doing multiple different things. Because just as human beings, again, we have limited bandwidth. And uh, while it is absolutely critical to be involved in lots of different things from a training perspective, I mean, this is something that we brought up. You have to be reading about lots of different concepts so you can connect the dots between all those different concepts. But at some point, you have to niche down in a way or have a a niches of niches. And then you find this little pocket where you become really, really good at this this unique combination of skills that you've accrued by going out and doing lots of different things and finding that thing that you're really good at. That's mm-hmm. one opinion, but I really love that aspect of the division of labor and the different ways that division of labor can be interpreted when it comes to the DAO space 
and so many different options that you have at your disposal. Because the risk there is that you get stretched so thin that you have people feeling burnt out. They're like, I can't even stay up to date with everything that's going on because you haven't found that one little pocket that you're good at. And whether you apply that to lots of different DAOs or get deeply involved in one DAO, people feel burnt out because they can't keep up with everything. So something to think about. I loved that point. Yes. Yes. Like like Alex was saying, I think it's maybe just a, a sort of anomaly that both of us on, on the same pod are, are kind of heading in the right direction, the sort of uh, same direction in terms of, oh, this is our bandwidth. This is all that we we care to be involved with at any given time. We're certainly not putting a value on that. I think I think the most important thing is that this sort of impulse behind uh, this idea of decentralizing and pushing to the community and empowering the community, there's something really powerfully behind that, which is, you know, we, we are realizing now that the trust that we put into institutions, into these centralized, very powerful entities um, is something that we ought to be challenging and rethinking. You know, I think a line of thinking in, in the DAO space, particularly is that companies or leaders of these companies have proven themselves to be untrustworthy, self-serving. And so an answer to that could be, oh, well, let's have governance that is driven by the community for the community. Let's have the community enter into every step of the process and prevent power from ever again being concentrated um, in any single um, point of failure. And that is certainly an answer, but I think it's only one answer. I think another answer that Alex and I have talked about a lot is that we ought to be looking at the design and the architecture of the systems that give rise to or encourage this sort of self-serving behavior that becomes destructive of the whole, and then rethink the sources, the factors that motivate human beings. And in doing so, the question for me is, you know, can we create a new world in which the best part of our humanity comes to the fore, where the individual is supported so as to support the community in turn, and this holistic flow is powered by trust and delegation, because that is super powerful. Again, leaning into this like very dry, dry-sounding economic category of division of labor, trust <laughs> and delegation. This is exactly what unleashes our superpowers as a collective. So wanted to, um, I, I did not think that it would take this long to riff on it, but I think Alex and I, as <laughs> usual, get carried away and have fun. Anyway, back to, uh, and we invite y'all to reach out to us, you know, push back against us. We, we want to hear from uh, from y'all what you are thinking and what these sort yes. of thoughts inspire in you. But back to the Seed Club Accelerator. So this is a very long way of saying hurrah for them, adding in this important and additional layer of context. The members of the selection committee obviously are going to wear a unique hat that enriches the perspective that club holders may have been able to bring to the voting race on mirror. But the second phase gives a second win to projects that didn't get a lot of votes for whatever the reason. They didn't have a lot of buzzworthy firepower behind them, not as active on social media, new to Web3, not as well connected in the space. Um, but the, I love the intentionality and design of this entire process and also of the distribution of the club token. You know, the token was distributed to early contributors, to projects that have been through the accelerator, to supporters of C-Club NFT projects. Um, So I cannot just, I'm just over the moon just every single time I see C-Club out there and being active. They're just doing things in such a beautiful and intentional way. So again, uh, kudos to them. But so impressed with the gamut of projects uh, and these are just three. Uh, Alex and I have picked out just three. We, we have to be stingy of the many incredibly intriguing projects, but let's dive right in, Alex. So first up is Meta Label. So what's the tagline here? Meta Label is a growing universe of resources for meta labels, collectives, and squads to world build, catalog their work, 
release new projects, and invite followers and funders to join in. What's the value prop? Our mission is to grow the collective creation of culture by creating tools, knowledge, community, and new income for meta labels and other cultural collectives. So what the heck is a meta label? To get there, we have to approach the meaning of a label. So the meta label team drafted up a beautiful manifesto of sorts. Uh, You can find the link to it on their website. I'll be referring to it throughout, but beautiful language here, beautiful written essay, but labels, Alex. So this word labels has become a bad word in the new creator economy. It's, it's being associated, you know, exploitative music labels and the like. And this is what meta label says. It's no coincidence that the cultural push against labels coincided with the rise of the so-called creator economy and a new cultural myth of the solo creator hustling and outcompeting their way to a million followers, subscribers, and riches. Among the legacies of this era, burned out creators, people turning themselves into content factories to please the algorithms. Cultural narratives and technological paradigms pushed everyone to be their own channel, to be the star of their own show. Being a creator during the past decade of the web has been a highly individualized experience. The creator economy is cultural creation in single-player mode. Meta-labels are cultural creation in multiplayer mode. So record labels, fashion labels, they use the actual phrase labels. But what meta-label is saying is publishing houses, art galleries, filmmakers, and other collectives, these are also quote-unquote labels. They provide seed funding for new ideas they create economic security, they hunt down and and secure and develop talent. They're a curation signal to the rest of the world about what matters and what's making moves and what's creating buzz. Labels, they say, are groups of people using a collective identity to make a mark in the world. And I love, I, I again, this is just maybe not, not too, not articulable fully at this point, Alex, but I, what I'm seeing in Meta Labels Manifesto is a sort of distancing uh, from the prevailing notion in the creator economy, which is bled over into Web3, that this and this notion is that intermediation is invariably a net bad. You know, we're constantly hearing about NFTs and crypto assets disintermediating, mm-hmm. disintermediating. But actually, says MetaLabel, creators need intermediation. They need help so that they can be free to, as we were saying at the beginning of the pod, to wear their unique hats and do the work that only they can do. So a label writ large in its pure ideal conceptual form makes a world of sense. And Meta Label is saying we need labels to realize a thriving uh, creator culture uh, and economy. Uh, so Meta Label points out the shift that's happening and says there's a wider movement that's re-emerging in the post-internet age. These projects from activism to artist collectives to mutual aid groups to new vehicles like DAOs point to a powerful tool that's emerging for creative projects and cultural movements. And that structure is called a meta-label. So while labels from the 20th century are selling defined products and their aim is to deploy capital to lock down financial windfalls, in contrast, meta-labels what they're doing, what they're creating can be anything. It can be a meme. It can be an event. It can be an experience. It's a public work. And the centrality of the idea behind this activity and the propagation of the idea via community engagement is front and center, not profit maximization, not profit seeking. 
So meta labels are people working under a common identity for a common cause with a focus on distinct public works that communicate and support their goals. What I love, Alex, about this image of the meta label are, are the beautiful parallels that they're being drawn from meta labels to DAOs. I think DAOs as meta labels is an incredible framing and really frees one to think beyond the assumptions of traditional business, traditional finance driven motives. If DAO is a meta label, as the manifesto says, uh, our purpose is not to deploy capital to lock down profit or financial windfalls, but to issue distinct public works that tell a story of the deeper ideals and values that inspire us. And if that is the case, then I ask myself, how would this framing change the way that DAOs operate? So that's meta label. What do you think, Alex? What are your thoughts? I, I'm going to pull in a point from uh, Chris Dixon's response to Moxie, which we're not going to cover in detail mm. on, on this call. But I, his main point here was that uh, the, the main difference between Web 2 and Web 3 is not... The, the goal is not to have everything be decentralized. There's definitely going to be some centralized pieces. But the network effect uh, is private in Web 2 versus public in Web3. And the network effect is what carries all of that value, where you have these enclosed systems in Web2 that hold all of that value versus in Web3 that being a public network effect, you still get the value of the network, but you get the fluidity of being able to move in between different networks. And I think that concept is mm -hmm. demonstrated really, really well here with MetaLabel and that the value that, let's say, traditional record labels, for example, which get a really bad rep here, especially when it comes to music NFTs, that's why a lot of these creators are coming to these Web3 native ones, is they have these network effects that are powerful, but they're private and they're locked behind these record labels that say, you basically need to sell your soul to us in order to take advantage of our own mm -hmm. private network. And a lot mm -hmm. of these bands that are going through these record labels have really no choice because it's almost impossible to go alone, to go single player and see the success that a lot of these other bands do. So they willingly yeah. give up a lot of their success, the, the financial success to the record labels, even though they're the ones doing a lot of the work after they leverage the network effects of that private label. So I love this aspect of like, let's take the, the value there, the labels. There's a reason why these bands go to these labels, right? Mm -hmm. it's, we all agree that it's an extractive aspect. What if we make those powerful network effects public? Now it's not a single player game. These creators can still leverage that network and the, and the value that that offers in order to get the word out and work alongside each other, not have to go alone. And yet it's a public network, so they don't have to sell their souls. They can still keep a lot of the value that they accrue. So I love that concept. I think it ties it in very, very nicely on why, is, why does Web3 even really, really matter? And MetaLabel, I think, is getting into that piece here with the public networks. Yes. Absolutely. So if you liked MetaLabel, I think you're definitely going to dig Pentagraph because I think Pentagraph is vibing on the same wavelength. So Pentagraph, oh my goodness, the vibes, the vibes, Pentagraph. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I have to ask the, the listeners, the fam right now to just put us on pause, go to Twitter, uh, look up Pentagraph's Twitter profile and just look at the art. I'm absolutely in love with it. But what is the tagline for Pentagraph? The ultimate platform agnostic storytelling DAO. The value prop, Web2 Media is a sorry state of affairs. Newsrooms are biased and broke. Journalists are underpaid and have no ownership. Creator platforms are causing burnout and subscriber fatigue. Long tail value like articles that become movies is fading, but it doesn't have to be this way. Pentagraph is a new media organization drawing the coordination problems of yesterday through the Web3 prism of tomorrow, 
all in the name of supercharging multimedia storytelling. So Ground Zero for Pendograph Storytelling is a digi-physical magazine. It's made with Web3 in mind, of course, but it's going to explore the broader spectrum of our shared future, including DAOs, do-it-yourself, sci-fi, unexplored frontiers. It's like an NFT-laced techno-spiritual, the New Yorker in the year 3146. What an imagination, Alex. I absolutely love that line. So what's the human-powered soul that's driving Pentagraph DAO? It's a positive-sum ecosystem of writers, graphic designers, filmmakers, and developers. And one of the beautiful graphics that you'll find on their Twitter profile is a sort of mapping of the Pentagraph DAO ecosystem with storytellers at the very top, including journalists, multimedia contributors, and developers. And this is feeding down into like the sort of vertically aligned uh, spine of the DAO that at the very middle, it has the story token. And these are built native to the needs of media in Web3. And then further down, we have the Pentagraph DAO. And there's a council here. There are select members here um, that are pulling in uh, the best and brightest stories and content from the ecosystem to then feed into syndication, intellectual property commission, and sponsorships. And on the quote-unquote margins or the edges of the community, um, you have the different sorts of content pillars. You have magazines, you have guides, you have learning, you have tentpole projects, uh, films, for instance. You have evergreen content and you have digital experiences. Uh, And then on the left side, you have NFT memberships, Discord events, IRL events, love, 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 and NFTs. And again, the storytellers are feeding this activity in the ecosystem, uh, all of it being supported by the story token and then the Pentagraph DAO and the council. They are pulling the best and the brightest from the ecosystem and pushing it through to syndication and monetization. And that revenue then flows back uh, into the DAO. So it's a beautiful graphic. It's a beautiful process. And what are the specifics about the creative process here? So each month, Pentagraph is going to announce a theme. And then remote interdisciplinary collaboration will ensue in the Discord, and the best proposals as voted on by our community will make it into this New Yorker of 3146 that we just described This is uh, so earlier. cool. It's so cool, right? I mean, I'm getting like, I'm getting the fangirl vibes again. I know you probably heard this last time I was speaking about Pool Suite, but I think Pentagraph yeah. is now my, <laughs> my new favorite. So Pentagraph's all-star council mines stories throughout the ecosystem, like I was saying, lifting works and author sovereignty up into podcasts, TV, and film. Hollywood, baby, proceeds all go back to the Dow, and the process begins anew, uh, end quote. So my goodness, you can definitely, definitely see that the, the people powering this, uh, this initiative, they are writers par excellence. So I reached out to the founder of Pentagraph. His name is Toby Campion. He was the founder of Motherboard. And Motherboard, if you all don't know, was launched by Vice in 2009 and is a multi-platform, multimedia publication focused on the next wave of science and technology. So Toby was absolutely lovely about fielding the questions that I had about the project. I wanted to share them with Alex and with the Forefront fam. And again, he is a writer. So my goodness, what a writer he is. So the only way that I can do him justice, I'm just going to read verbatim what he composed for us to share with the Forefront family. So my first question regarding Pentagraph, Toby, what's the biggest question and challenge on your mind that you were hoping to reach clarity on by going through the Seed Club Accelerator? So Toby answers, the biggest question on my mind is how can I connect my vision for more immersive storytelling in the future with the Web3 technology available today so that as many journalists, graphic designers, and audiophiles and video uh, pros can get involved. 
Uh, number two, I asked him, in thinking about DAO design, tokenomics, and community building, do you have any spicy take or contrarian views that you would like to share with us? Uh, and I think he has two of them here. I want to check my Twitter to make sure I didn't miss one. But his first spicy take is on journalism. He says, I worry about subjecting an already wary journalist community to the whipping winds of good and evil in Web3. Crypto, NFTs, and tokens have a bad rap in that community. Same goes with a lot of my artist pals. There's been adoption, of course, but a lot of people see crypto as being more value-obsessed asset speculation and less pure creativity. I, as it happens, disagree, but I appreciate the perspective. With this in mind, I lay awake at night thinking about how to help a generation of creators get sight about telling stories in the Web3 environment. The second spicy take that he wants to share with us is about mental health, and I really appreciate this. So Toby says, I saw a quote the other day that said, Web4 is just going outside again. My only personal hesitancy <laughs> with getting into the space is the desk time. Discord, Twitter, token, coin prices, firing all day long is just reward yeah. system overload. For this reason, Pentagraph is launching with a digi physical play. I'm really supportive of anyone doing the same. Cabin down, where are you at? So the third question that I had for Toby is what's the most powerful lesson learned from your journey as motherboard founder that you can bridge to your new Web3 endeavor? And he has some amazing alpha to share with us here. He has three pieces of alpha. So Toby says, number one, Left to their own devices, media companies accumulate latent pools of human resources and capital. It sits in stagnant puddles, slowing everything down. Everyone gets bummed. Vice was this magical place for a long time where an idea could become reality overnight. And when that bureaucratic inertia hits, talent is the first to say, fuck this. DAOs are the solve here big time. They're dynamic by nature. They can't help it. Everything is transparent and everything is in constant motion. This will attract talent. It's really exciting. Number two, Vice went from having a magazine, some retail stores, and a record label to being a digital behemoth. It really is an incredible growth story. The number one most trafficked vertical was Motherboard. The reason why is that it spoke internet to people on the internet. Web3 has its own native modes of communication, and anyone who wants to tell stories in the space needs to understand the emerging relationship between storytellers and developers. This alliance between creative and technical is the future, and we're shaping the dimensions of Pentagraph's story proposal system accordingly. Number three, the ad-driven Web2 digital media revenue model has put extraordinary downward pressure on journalism. It's not anyone's fault, really. There was near limitless ad money for a time and then the platforms hoovered it up. The result, though, is that storytelling at these companies has become a volume game, aka journalism. More articles, less length. Long-tail value of content Amen. articles becoming movies, for instance, has paid the greatest price here. There's this thing that happens when a writer has more time and resources to collaborate on a longer form story. A flywheel effect kicks in and opportunity presents itself everywhere. As it stands, crypto economic models are the best support structure for immersive work like this. We are in for a truly glorious age of storytelling. End quote. <laughs> Mike drop. I yes. got to follow this guy. What's his? <laughs> you got to follow him. Toby Campion. So T-H-O-B-E-Y underscore C-A-M-P-I-O-N. Alex and I are going to pause here. Everyone go to your desktop, your laptop, 
your phone, follow Toby Campion, mic drop, big, big time mic drop. I'm going to let Alex just recover a little bit, take that in. And then (laughs) I'll ask the usual question. What do you think, my friend? (laughs) Well, I mean, when I I initially heard about this, I'm like, this is ad libs on steroids, which I was happy (laughs) with. But man, this guy has uh, the right head on his shoulders. So I got to follow more. And I mean, they're, they're, um, I can't find them right now on Twitter. I'll have to do it afterwards. But Pentagraph only has 63 followers right now. It just started up. I mean, th- yes. this, it was started this they month. It just so, started up. Wow. I, I think here's the thing. You have DAO overload and I have a thousand discords, right? And a lot of them <laughs> can seem like, okay, these are, these are typical jobs. I have to create this. I have to do that. This is like something that I could see myself like grabbing a beer, hanging out with buddies, going into Discord, and you do something like that. Yes. You do ad lib. It's like a drinking game in a way, and you have fun with it. But then there's all these profound visions that he has on the effect here, and it's not just a, you know, it's not just a drinking game or improv type of game or anything like that. Like there, there he has such a big vision for it. So I think this can have you, you can attract a lot of different people. People who want to just say, "This is cool as hell. I I love the aspect mm-hmm. of this." kind of decentralized way to create stories. And then other people who are feeling super disenfranchised with the existing uh, journalism type of trends, which I completely agree with. YouTube is the exact same way where it's like they Mm -hmm. incentivize you to just create more content and get more eyes and more watch time. And it seems like this is what all media is trying to do is not create quality, but try and keep eyes on the platform as long as possible probably to do with the extractive aspect of where we're giving you ad space, or we're trying to throw ads to you and that makes us money. So you just kind of have these bastardized incentives in web two. And I, I just love the head he has on his shoulders and the vision that he has here. And ad libs on, on steroids would have been happy with it, but man, I'm going to look more into this. This sounds so cool. Yes, you should. And my friends, I, I mean, I'm really serious. Like I said, when I started the segment, vibes, vibes, and more vibes. I think what 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 did just say? Just had this beautiful saying that DAOs are uh, sense making organisms uh, with a call to action that have been instigated via a call to action. And my goodness, this is an amazing call to action. If you just read the tweet storms, look at the art, um, you've you've listened to the words coming out of Toby's mouth uh, himself. So I, I think the call to action here is incredibly powerful. The vision here is incredibly powerful. And this is, this is the pull of DAOs, right? This is where an idea, um, can, can truly work up the motivation and the momentum through the mechanism of DAOs and crypto to become a thriving, uh, community, a thriving creative community. So, uh, like, like uh, Alex was saying, there are less than 100 followers at this point. So, uh, it's a no brainer for me. Uh, click the follow button. We're and, still early. Uh, yes, join me. Join me in, in seeing where these amazing projects are going to uh, are going to explore this beautiful, beautiful little space of of Dow Dow World. The last project that we have is going to be GM GN Supply Company. Um, they have a really cool Google Slides deck. My friends, go out there, look at it. What's the tagline? We are building 100 community-based CPG brands. Our mission is to take on General Mills, Nestle, Unilever by launching 100 CPG brands by the friends, for the friends, owned by the friends. We're all going to build 100 brands. The value prop, the majority of brands we use every day are owned by 11 large corporations. Profits, ownership, and governance are all centralized within those 11 companies. 
We want people to own the brands that they use every day. We want them to have a say in how these brands are developed. We want them to have a share of the profits. And so eyebrows should be wagging now. I'll get into that. (laughs) So what's the mechanism here? The mechanism are, of course, NFTs. NFTs will give community ownership, participation, and rewards. What does the governance look like? The community will vote on major decisions, which products get developed, which campaigns are rolled out. Members can, of course, also earn the native token by contributing. The first product is GM Cereal. Uh, It is developed in partnership with the DAO member Off Limits Cereal. And the really cool thing, Alex, is that in every box, there's going to be rewards. So we're talking Willy Wonka, golden ticket vibes. Every box includes NFT, token airdrop. I know, merchandise, other prizes. (laughs) So who's the team here? Funday. Funday is the core team, creative agency with expertise in CPG, Web3, and direct-to-consumer. John Kane, and of course, Off Limits Serial. So there are different tiers of membership here, different costs, uh, different governance power and a percentage of gross revenue, as well as a percentage of royalties on the NFT resale. So thus far from what I can have grokked, we have the founder and advisor level NFT. We have an executive member NFT, 300 max, my friends. And we have a member NFT, 2,500 max. So that's not a lot. It's not a lot at all. 2022 roadmap, Q1, form the DAO finalize the tokenomics, build the initial community and launch the NFT Q2, launch the serial. They're going to be using the Shopify store. They're going to be shipping those boxes in Q2. In Q3, what do we have? Launching the second product. Oh my gosh, Alex, I know that you're going to share some experience that you have in the CPG space, but launching Mm -hmm. two products in that short amount of time through a a DAO is kind of like mind-blowing right now. But they plan to do this, (laughs) launching the second product based on community vote. And of course, it wouldn't be a roadmap without buying land in Sandbox for the virtual store. So my friends, did you catch what I said earlier? Yes, this is going to be the first revenue sharing DAO. And this is such a huge unlock. Massive. I remember last season, it's massive. And I I can't wait to see what they do with this. But last season, I was jamming in a conversation with someone and the question was posed. We talked about ownership. We talked about how DAOs give ownership via this token mechanism. But then we said, is it really ownership if it doesn't include revenue sharing? And you have to think about that question apart from the regulatory headache that comes with the revenue sharing. But that's a very provocative question. But I posed the same questions that I gave to Toby, to the GMGN team. And these are their answers. So number one, what's foremost on their mind as they go into the C-Club Accelerator and they say legal clarity, legal clarity about the best way to operate within the law for the DAO, the best way to structure the tokenomics to ensure long-term success of the project. And I asked, what's the spicy contrarian take that you want to share with us? And then here's where they say, they drop the alpha on us. They say, we believe we can structure the DAO as the first to be revenue sharing and built as an affiliate model. So it's clearly not a security. And and every contract for revenue distribution is on-chain and fully auditable. Therefore, no asymmetric information risk of this being considered a security. Boom. So there's that. <laughs> and then the number three is the most powerful lesson learned in your journey as a Fun Day founder that you can bridge to your new Web3 adventure. And they have three things to share with us and the Forefront fam. Number one, product market fit related to the right timing. And they say this DAO at this time 
is just the right moment. Now is the time to launch. Number two, the right founding partners. They say we've brought together lots of the folks we've worked with before and we trust in this endeavor. And number three, they say it's not related to if it succeeds, but they believe every entrepreneur should ask themselves, should this exist in society? Are you bringing something good to the world? And this CPG DAO, GMGN, aims to be products that are good for you, good for the environment, and we want to be big enough to have an impact on a global scale. And in addition, they say we hope to lead the way in how DAOs can operate successfully, even for a complex project like ours. Wow. So Alex, what do you think? You are slaying this episode. I love it. I can't even <laughs> have to follow this up. Well, hopefully my commentary is enough here. But man, these are such cool projects. And I think they're way outside of the realm of what we've seen before with these other projects that might be kind of similar, but making a, a slight tweak here. But I mean, making a community-owned CPG brand uh, way outside the box. I, I love this type of stuff. So um, to give some context, I before I made the full jump to Web3 full-time, I actually worked for a tech company that that made a platform and actually serviced a lot of different CPG brands. So this hits close to home, learned a lot about the CPG space. And one trend that I, I think is obvious to a lot of people now is the, the trend towards direct-to-consumer and small digitally native brands. So if everyone wants to mm -hmm. take a second here and just think back to some of the last products that you bought and how many of those were direct-to-consumer, whether you clicked on an ad on Instagram whether you heard about it in a YouTube video and a review there and you went to their own like Shopify site or something, that is super, super common now. And it used mm -hmm. to be, and, and think back to the, mm -hmm. the old traditional way where you're going into a grocery store for, let's say, CPG, and you only have so much shelf space. So you can really only fit two to three brands up there. And then when new brands come up and are, are, are kind of fighting for shelf space there, similar to like the record label thing, it's like you almost kind of have to get eaten up by this larger thing that has the network effect here, that has the economies of scale in order to have any chance of competing. And this is why you see these large conglomerates that have dozens or hundreds of brands underneath their umbrella is because they have those economies of scale, those network effects um, from the traditional world. And this is, this is even pre-Web 2. I mean, a lot of these big brands are struggling in Web 2 and are getting eaten up by some mm -hmm. of these smaller D2C brands that are coming through. So a few things here. One, we now have the technology for D2C brands to really thrive. And then you actually have the market being way more receptive to direct-to-consumer brands and aren't as focused on brand names and are a hell of a lot more yes. focused on product features and values. Like, does this mm -hmm. product align with my values? And that extends past, um, you know, what is this product going to do for me? But is this sustainable? Is this... Um, is this environmentally friendly? Is this all of these other values? Are they uh, donating to charity? All of these other things that even have nothing to do with the product itself. So people are, are, are no longer just diehard loyal to the brands that they've always used. They're constantly looking for something that's going to um, align with their own values. And they're open to not just the brand name, but a brand that can come through and actually align with those different values if they can market it the right way. So the market is ripe for these different direct-to-consumer brands. And then here you have something like this, a brand new way to even think about it, where the community is dictating what ends up uh, getting out to market. And I think this is where you can harness the hive mind um, 
uh, and mm. where I think decentralization could really, really benefit here, mm. where if mm-hmm. you have the community who's kind of feeling out these different trends, whether it's saying trends coming up through TikTok, right? You just kind of have these waves come through where mm-hmm. the community picks up on these different trends and then rolls with it and just creates this giant, almost like manic wave of a trend that many times seems completely stupid and irrational, but you're capturing <laughs> on that and then you're fluidly moving to the next trend. So mm-hmm. I think you can harness that kind of hive mind, that decentralized mind by saying to the community, what's going to trend right now? What should we be selling? And I think something that could additionally bake in is this fluidity of saying, let's sell this, let's sunset this as the market changes. And you kind of have this adjusting Mm. um, community-owned and hive mind-directed CPG brand that you can kind of just through that hive mind determine where the demand is shifting. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a really interesting potentiality Mm -hmm. for this where if you can if you can take this technology and introduce the agility of these digitally native direct to consumer brands that are just eating the lunch of these large brands and bring that into the the and, and let the hive mind the community actually dictate the, the path that that, that company is going to take wow I, I just the amount mm-hmm. of money that you can make for the community and for the dow i mean you you've just seen some mega successes in the direct to consumer brand gymshark is a really big one. While not direct to con- or while not CPG per se, there's still, I mean, there, there's there's lots of different CPG brands that have just mom and pop shops, and they just absolutely blow up. So I, I think this this theme that we're seeing here of public network effects, leveraging those, and then allowing the community based mind to dictate the direction that this digitally native direct consumer brand can go. I like it's just so much is open here. I could see this being a really, really big trend. So I absolutely love this. Yeah, that was really cool. That was your own mic drop, uh, Alex. That was amazing. Yeah, I, I, well, I gotta I, have I totally... one. You got you had a lot no, this no, episode. No, 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 <laughs> no, my goodness! It was like these are these are their words. I'm reading Toby's words. I'm, I'm reading GMGN's words. So uh, that's all I'm doing. I'm just I'm just the voice. Um, but I think uh, the way that you just uh, the way that you framed it is, is super powerful. It's this DAO as essentially a CP, you know, um, a CPG uh, product, a studio. I, I'm forgetting I'm forgetting which um, article this was. I think it was written by David Spinks, who's huge in the uh, community building space. But he was talking about the power of looking at um, looking at companies no longer as just you know focusing on discrete. Uh, products one at a time, but really looking at their superpower as like iterating, iterating on ideas that are coming from the community. And so I think this idea of DAOs or CPG DAO that is actually like a product studio where, like you said, they're going with the hive mind, they're jumping into these trends, and then they're able to pivot so quickly um, because the community is actually feeding the sort of collective sense-making and awareness in the market itself and helping to drive these decisions. Uh, And they have no sort of they have no sort of like, I think, attachment to, no, 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 this is our GM cereal. This has to be something that lasts for 50 years or 50, 100 years, like, yeah. you know, Kellogg's. They don't have that same loyalty to, to a given product that I think slows down these incumbent traditional corporations. Um, so well put, you know, well said. I absolutely love it. Awesome. Well, uh, I unfortunately need to follow that up. So we're going to change a little bit direction here. <laughs> absolutely. Mic drop. Slow clap. That was amazing. Love all of those different projects. I learned so much on this podcast. Hope people are enjoying it as well. But 
we're going to move more into new DAO tooling. So we have one particular one here. This should be pretty straightforward. Obvious use case, I think, for a lot of people when it comes to one of the most common DAOs that we're seeing is investment DAOs. So this is introducing mm -hmm. Syndicate. They are um, they're an investment DAO tool. So I'll, I'll briefly go through this. They have a really detailed mirror article laying everything out. So I'm kind of going to give the uh, TLDR. But if you go onto their website and there's, there's actually a demo, if you click on it, there's like the a demo button there and it actually okay. populates example data here that makes it very, very easy to understand the value that you're going to get here. So I'll just quickly list some of the things that you'll get here. Uh, powerful investing DAOs in a few clicks. This is the idea that it's, it's kind of the gnosis but specifically for uh, mm -hmm. investment DAOs. And they actually compare with things like Gnosis, like Snapshot for the backend types of pieces. But what it's meant to do is bring all of these characteristics that a typical investment DAO has and get it all in one platform. So powerful DAO in a few clicks. It's very easy to set up. It's just a matter of um, coming together kind of off-chain. Mm -hmm. You have DAO deposit links, mirror tables, mirror shares. You have DAO legal doc generation and Web3 signing on-chain, real-time investments dashboards, that's like NFTs, that's different tokens, the percentage that you own on each one of those, off-chain investment memos and metadata. So you can actually track if you were going to do more like accredited investing and more uh, VC investments, something like that. You can track all of that that's going to be there. Um, mm -hmm. th they have a lot of different features here. A super straightforward and, and obvious use case here if you've ever been in a type of investment DAO. So highly, highly recommend you check out the Mirror article. We're going to put that in the show notes here. And it's one of those things, just like everything else in crypto, You when you see it and when you use it, it will become very, very obvious, the use cases. And that demo button is, I would say, one of the best things that you can do to, to learn more about this. It could become very, very obvious. Um, so that's all I had on that one. Uh, one last point at Forefront is actually going to be creating mm -hmm. an investment DAO that's an offshoot and um, using Syndicate themselves. So that's something that I'm going to participate in. So I don't know. Cool. It, it, have you dug into this at all, Caroline? Um, I, I don't know if you've I, been I, a part of an investment DAO even. I, I never have. I never have. But um, I'm curious, Alex, I don't know if you know this, but how does... I know that Syndicate is not a DAO. Is, is that correct? I'm pretty sure that Syndicate I, is not a DAO. Yeah, I, I believe so. It's more just the tool for DAOs. Yes, yes. So how are they? Um, how, what do you think? Like the 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 um, the value relationship to Syndicate is. How are they kind of recouping their investment in building out this tool? Are they getting a percentage of all the sort of transactions, or how are they? How are they funding this, or how are they seeing any sort of value recoupment of, of value if they are? <sighs> that's that's such a good point. That's not something I really picked up in. Um, in the article here, there's no real mention of uh, how they're how they're mm -hmm. recuperating some costs or what kind of if there's like a a fee of using this. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. That's something. Yeah. I think that's something to look in here. That's something we can look more into on on the website here. But um, that's a good point. I, I hope there's no um, like small print here or something where they're just like they're taking a percentage of every fee. It, maybe it is, and maybe it's negligible, and then it comes back to. Um, comes back to the treasury for them. But um, yeah, I, I didn't see anything there. They do have additional documents here. They have a full uh, like Gitbook page here with a lot more details. So I think at a high level, the, the tool looks really, really clean, looks super easy. So if this is something cool. where even if you have uh, non-Web3 native friends and you mm -hmm, want to get them involved mm -hmm. in this, 
This is one of those tools that I love just brings all of these things together, makes it very easy, very intuitive to use. And even if you just use it for non-Web3 based things, I mean, you, you can track some of those investments right there. But then when you introduce things like Gnosis, like Snapshot and the governance there, and even have a, a group of 10 friends and you can use that dashboard, there is a red pill moment, right? That, that's something that people are just going to be like, oh my gosh, this space is just mm-hmm. churning out really, really interesting and intuitive stuff and mm-hmm. really good developers in this space. And visually, again, once you see it, it'll become very obvious the value that you're going to get out of it. But that's a really yeah. good point. That's something I'll have to dig into. And I, I think the power of moving, you know, you asked me at the beginning if I'd ever taken uh, part in an investment club. I never have, but I think just imagining the power of moving that from like typically a single player uh, to a multiplayer mode, I think it's just super, super um, intriguing. You know, I, I haven't actually uh, been super involved yet in the Forefront Investment Club because we're so busy with setting up season two. Mm-hmm. But we already have a Discord channel, Alex, where people are dropping alpha, where, you know, people are sharing uh, decks, investment decks and, and little tips. And it's the, the the energy in that Discord channel is off the charts, Alex. So I, I, I don't consider myself very savvy uh, in investing in general, but I can imagine that if this were more a social activity, and, and I love that because I think that's one of the value props of the Forefront uh, Investment Club. They say very clearly, they're like, you know, we're here to have fun. We're here to learn from one another. Mm-hmm. And if your sole primary goal is to make money, this isn't the investment club for you. So I really mm-hmm. like that that value prop is like front and center for the Forefront um, investment club, but I can see myself totally getting really stoked about meeting up with people that share my values and that I yeah. have fun with, and then know far more about investment than I do and getting super excited about the alpha and, and the deal flow that's coming our way and, and sharing, you know, sharing ideas about what, what we should be investing in and investing in the things that make us excited and passionate together. I love that just like investment on my own by myself, dealing with like funds, mutual funds, what. <laughs> I kind of get bored by that. I kind of get, yeah. Boring at at worst and uh, terrifying at best. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's the main theme here is, is multiplayer and just the Mm -hmm, the value coming together and leveraging all of that knowledge and not in a way that's going to lock you in, in an ecosystem. You're not trading off a huge trade-off. So love that aspect. Um, I'm going to skip over one topic just for the sake of time. This is going to be a, a quick hit in terms of news, but I think it's a, it's a good takeaway based on what we've talked about before. So YouTube has announced that they are highly considering NFTs. And <laughs> we've heard this story over and over, uh, things like Twitter, Facebook, now Meta, Reddit, Discord, Square Enix, mm-hmm. all these different type of traditional tech companies announcing that, hey, NFTs are coming. And that's essentially it. And we've all seen the reception. Um, you even heard it from Toby. What he was saying is like, there's this feeling in the traditional ecosystem yeah. that just crypto NFTs have a really, really bad name. And you, you're kind of at risk mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. these big companies with big audiences tech kind of taking and giving a negative connotation to these names that have should have this native Web3 ethos of, of giving power back to the community and to the individual. So I, I'm... I'm I, I hate to sound skeptical right off the bat, but seeing as how many we how many poor releases we've had, my hope is that YouTube and Google sees what uh, what wrong looks like, and they actually release <laughs> something that one has community at heart to begin with, and then two, they actually very explicitly explain the value to the community. 
And here's the thing. If you're not genuine about that, they're going to see right through it and they're going to eat you alive. People are already feeling a little pissed off at YouTube because they're kind of chipping away at the rights of creators. People's videos are getting taken down. People's Mm -hmm. uh, revenue is getting hit out of nowhere. Um, People are already feeling on edge right now. So if YouTube is really serious uh, and and their verbiage here is saying there's a previously unimaginable opportunity right now to Mm. improve the relationship between creators and their fans. Well, if you truly believe that YouTube, and I hope you do, then make sure that you are keeping that as the focal point when you're releasing NFTs and you are explicit about how it's going to benefit that relationship. And if Mm -hmm. you're not genuine about that, people are going to see right through it. They're going to eat you alive. So things like doing the whole Apple thing where you're taking 30% of every NFT sale, that's a red flag. Things where yeah. there's, there's, you're just seeing this as another revenue generating opportunity, that's a red flag. How can you enrich the community, your customers, and make their and enrich their fans? And th- that's the perspective that you have to look through. It. You have to look at it from this, this bottom up. You have to listen to your creators when you're actually rolling this out and not just saying, here are NFTs, hope you love it. You you have to have that feedback from community. So don't just take inspiration from Web3. Fully embrace Web3. That would be my Mm. advice. So we'll see. I don't don't know if you've seen Mm. uh, releases there, any other kind of side news and coming out with that. But for now, it just seems like they're they're really thinking about it. And that's, that's pretty much the news. Yeah, and I I think uh, face, Facebook and IG also announced that they're thinking about incorporating NFTs. And I think overall, Alex, I think these competitive forces that are coming from Web 3s rise means that these huge incumbents are thinking about creator loyalty. They're having nightmares of an exodus of creators going to the new Web3 platforms. They need to get ahead of this. How do we expand meaningful monetization options? I do think that uh, I'm, I'm not going to discount their sincerity in thinking about that because I think that the worst thing for them, again, is to have this huge bleeding hemorrhaging of creators going to the new Web3 platforms. Um, and I think that this competitive pressure of these huge incumbents that are actively thinking about meaningful monetization options is good for the ecosystem uh, mm-hmm. overall. I just have big questions about NFTs. I mean, I think assuming that YouTube is is, is sincere about uh, exploring other sort of monetization options, we know that Right now, they're under a lot of uh, pressure because they're they're one of the few streamers that accept ads, and ads ad revenue is a huge portion of of what they're generating. But HBO Max has said that it plans to go that route soon, and Netflix and Disney are the other huge streamers. And if they ever decide yeah. to follow suit in in actually selling ads, you, you're going to have a lot of competition, um, and it's it's going to it's going to get very very that space is going to get very very crowded very very quickly. And I know that YouTube has been trying to innovate in terms of expanding those monetization options. Creators can um, they have I think ten I think that's what uh, Susan's letter said. They already have ten non ads based options for monetization: monthly memberships. Uh, digital goods, like online stickers. So maybe they're thinking of NFTs as like a natural outgrowth of this and also the sale of, of merchandise. Um, but I really question the whole NFT things because if you think about it, what are you going to do about the long tail of NFTs, which is pretty darn long? I mean, just like only the smallest percentage of YouTubers are raking in considerable amounts of money and the prime, the primary, the, the huge proportion of YouTubers are making a pittance. I mean, the same mm-hmm. may actually go for NFTs as well. And in fact, we are seeing that dynamic, uh, Alex. I, I actually yep. read an article from December 2021 that said 
Um, I, I think a year ago, a huge proportion of new NFT projects were selling out, but now 95% of projects are failing to mint out upon release. So mm-hmm. again, I think NFTs will only do so much, even assuming that YouTube is sincere, uh, that they want to expand monetization options. They're realizing that the, only the tippy tippy top of the pyramid is able to make a living and they, and they don't want to hemorrhage all these creators. I think, again, you're, they're, they're thinking about this new world within the old frame, old world framework. It's exactly like you said. Um, and I think NFTs is going to offer quite limited opportunities um, if you're just going to saturate an already uh, saturated market and have the winner-take-all sort of dynamic that's already happening on the, on the advertising angle. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I didn't hear anything more about that. Like you said, it's just talk for, for Twitter and mm-hmm. uh, Facebook and uh, IG. Well, actually not Twitter, forgive me. Uh, did you know that uh, Twitter uh, recently released a um, NFT a profile picture uh, yeah. uh, e- feature thingy? <laughs> yep. I, I, yeah, the, yeah, the hexagon basically, and, and hexagon, that seems it, yes. to be it. And what what <laughs> yes. the non crypto native NFT native uh, community is saying is like, <laughs> oh great, and, and Twitter also added the functionality to to automatically block or uh, like hide people who have NFT backgrounds. Like, yes, NFTs are great. So it's just like you're basically supporting all those people who hate NFTs and saying, oh, I don't even have to look at those people anymore. So you have. You have both sides. Everyone's happy. Maybe that's the right way to do it, right? I don't know. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see with YouTube. Um, it, it just seems to be one of those things like the, the trend of everyone hopping on the streaming service train. You see Netflix yep. seeing, being wildly successful, all the money to be made, and all these companies say, we're going to hastily put out a streaming service. And now look, mm-hmm. we have like 10 streaming services. Everyone's paying only five bucks a month. And great, now you're paying cable amount. <laughs> you're, you're still paying it. You're yeah. still replacing cable <laughs> with the right amount of, uh, when you have all those streaming services. So I don't know. I, I just think it needs to be something where companies take a step back. They're very, very careful, careful about how they're releasing this. And they're making sure that they're coming at it from a web three native approach and not just trying to hide web two practices in this new shiny web three package. And I think that's what's kind of disenfranchising people is they're saying, this is the same old shit. All it has is a new name, and now I hate mm-hmm. NFTs. And a lot mm-hmm. of people are, are missing out on the real utility there. And it's sad because everyone's just doing the right-click save. They're not seeing all of this utility that can be generated uniquely by something like NFTs. It's, it's, so it's really sad. And I, I think these big companies have a big responsibility to make sure that they're not tainting that name and ruining, ruining the potentiality, not just for themselves, but for the entire ecosystem. So there's a responsibility yes. there. Yes, um, yes, so we'll yes. see. I, I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but th- that's the stage that we're at with all the, the other releases that we've seen so far. So fingers crossed, honestly, fingers crossed. I wish them the best. Yes. So we are actually at the uh, one hour mark, a little bit over one hour. And um, I wanted to just quickly mention that the original plan for this, Alex, uh, and I told Alex this in our prep call, was that I, I was thinking of actually inviting uh, these uh, C-Club project uh, teams onto the podcast uh, and uh, jamming with them and working it into um, our, our content, our, our time spent with the Forefront family. Mm-hmm. Ended up not having enough time to do that. It was just easier for me to like shoot out the questions and then have it come back on. And again, like I said, thank goodness, uh, Toby, for instance, is a complete fire writer. So I was, <laughs> we were able to bring the energy up to a completely different level with the energy of these different uh, projects and me sort of narrating for them their thinking. But you can imagine what this might feel like in the future if we actually could 
um, have creators and, and project teams on jamming with us. So um, just wanted to say again, I know we closed off the last podcast by saying we are actively ideating ways to uh, make the podcast more Web3, more more participatory. Yes. And with this new year comes new year resolutions. And I know that we only began last year in October, but we have this feeling of momentum and creativity behind us. And I know Alex and I are constantly thinking of ways to bring more value, um, to just cultivate deeper community engagement. And I'm so happy to report that last week we had a, a listener, a regular listener of our podcast reach out to us with an amazing tip um, that only they could have known. Because again, uh, this is the multiplayer mode. Alex and I, <laughs> we don't have enough time. We don't know what's going on in the world. You know, thank God for the the, the resources of curation that we do have and that power this podcast. Yeah. But it's not enough. So I am so keen to actually dig into this tip that was uh, given to me by a loyal uh, listener of the podcast. It's going to be amazing when we find time to crack into it. I can't wait to share it with Alex and then wait to share it with you. Um, But just goes to say again that we are actively inviting y'all to reach out to us, um, to speak with us. We want to hear your ideas about how we can mix things up, make this more Web3, make this more participatory, cultivate deeper community engagement. And we are going to be in the future, I I hope and I promise, uh, if y'all are coming to us with these amazing tips and these amazing stories, we want to have y'all in the driver's seat. Um, in that sense. Um, so super, super excited about just receiving more contact, more emails, more DMs from y'all with ideas about where we can go. And I know Alex definitely feels the same yes. way. I so, read my DMs. Please send them out. Yes, yes, yes. So with that, my friends, um, again, I just want to thank um, the project teams that uh, allowed me to harass them with these questions. Thank you so much <laughs> again for inspiring uh, Alex and myself with these uh, projects that you're launching into the world. Thank you to C Club um, for their community alchemy. Uh, thank you, Alex, as always. And thank you, Forefront Family, for tuning in for another episode. And we will look forward to seeing you next time. See you then. Bye bye. Hey, fam. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. So please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.Market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night, or day. We'll see you next time.